Welcome to another episode of Epic Earth, a podcast for those curious about the STEM fields and the awesome, quirky, and fun experiences and research that is taking place right now. This is episode number three, Volcanic Mud Flows, the murky side of research. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take a journey around this epic earth. To another episode of Epic Earth. I'm here with Brian Rosenblatt. Hey. And we are interviewing PhD student Ashley Bosa. Hey everyone. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for coming, Ashley. So Ashley started school by getting her Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology in CU Boulder. You grew up in Colorado as well. What what part? Um, I actually grew up in southern Colorado in a really small town uh, in the San Luis Valley. Um, if you've never been or lived in Colorado, you probably don't know the name of it, but it's uh, Alamosa. Okay, so after getting that anthropology degree, you taught elementary school, is that correct? I did. I got a licensure in elementary school. I, I don't know why when I graduated from high school. Uh, kind of funnily, I wanted to be a paleontologist for the longest time since I was like a little kid. And then my senior year of high school, I was like, I don't want to do that much school. I don't want to go through my PhD. <laughs> so uh, I decided that I wanted to be an elementary ed teacher instead because I liked kids and I liked being around them. So I did that for a few years, um, which is uh, was a great opportunity. It actually is what took me abroad. I lived in England for six years, so it was the thing that got me there, which was exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. And then following that part of your career, you got went back to school, got your BS in geology from Adams State. That's right, yeah. And that was a pretty small school. How would you, what would you say are the advantages and disadvantages of attending a small versus a large university for your undergrad? That's a really great question. Yeah, I kind of was on both ends of the spectrum for my both my undergrad degrees. Um, so uh, big schools are great. They have the resources and they also have much more of the funding usually um, to get you and see you through your programs. Um, and they offer maybe more diversity in terms of the types of programs that they they teach or they have at their school. Um, But I have to say that I actually preferred going to the smaller school because uh, during my time at CU, I don't think I really had conversations with my professors there. I was in class sizes that were 200 plus people. Um, I'd have TAs, but you know, I really rarely had conversations with them outside outside of class time. Um, But being at at Adams State was really interesting because my department, the Earth Science Department, um, we literally had one geologist um, who taught in the department. And when I first started, we had one geographer. Wow. Yeah. um, And then it changed to two geologists in the department. But um, yeah, so they taught the whole Earth Science program. I literally went through all my geology classes with one professor. 
luckily I liked him a lot. He was yeah. a great advisor. So uh, it was, I mean, the smartest person um, I could think of. And he, I mean, to be able to teach all the geology classes was fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it offered me a lot more one-on-one -on -one time with uh, not only my instructors, but also um, we had a really small class sizes. Like I only had nine people through my cohort. So it was easy to be friends with people. It was easy to communicate with people. Um, so yeah, that was a great advantage. Obviously being a smaller school, we didn't have as many resources and not as much money, but we made, we made it work for us. Wow, I can't imagine being a professor and teaching every single class in a geology degree. I know. It's pretty impressive, I have to say. It's insane. I'm curious what got you to switch your career path from anthropology to geosciences. Um, so when I was at CU, I actually took a class in geology, hmm. thinking, here we go, I've just got to take a earth science class. And it ended up being my favorite class that hmm. I took. Uh, I absolutely loved it. And unfortunately, it was like, Again, it was like later in my program, so I was like, I don't want to switch my major, and you know, I'd already been there for like four years, so I was like, there's no way I want to stay here for like another three. Yeah. Um, but it was so funny because after that, anytime any of my friends or family wanted to go back to school, I was always like, you should take a geology class. It's <laughs> the coolest class out there. Um, and eventually, one one day, one of my friends, you know, said to me, they're like, well, why don't you take a geology class? Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking on it, and I was like, well, why don't I just go get my degree in it? And I was always fascinated with volcanoes, basically, and knew and told myself, you know, even before my friend said this, that if I ever went back to school, I was going to study volcanology, and geology was sort of the pathway into it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. <laughs> nice. Cool. So you, um, you opted to skip the master's following your graduation with a bachelor's. Skip the master's and dove right into the PhD. Um, so it wasn't more like I opted out of the master's. It was just sort of how it worked out. Uh -huh. When I apply was applying for programs, I was applying for both of them. Uh, I didn't even know, if I'm completely honest, that you could go straight into your PhD without a master's. I always thought you had to have the master's, and most programs do require that. Mm -hmm. A lot of professors will tell you, like, I require my students to go through a master's. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was speaking to my advisor here, Jeff Johnson, who's a geophysicist here at Boise State, um, I think it was just through a lot of writing I had done before and also just my application and he and our conversations that he felt pretty confident that I was going to be okay in the PhD program, which uh, is really, a, I feel flattered by that, but mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so it just so happens that I jumped straight into my PhD program without doing a master's, but yeah, usually the professors look for people who are like more mature and like willing to commit for five years. So that's oh, well, a good description of you. Like, <laughs> I don't well, obviously there's other things too. <laughs> I don't think I'm that mature, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think uh, you know it is really based on the relationship that you have with your advisor and sort of how they feel like. Uh, you know, I know a lot of students kind of sit on the fence sometimes about whether or not they want to do a PhD or not. A lot of students opt for the masters because a it's a shorter program and also because you know, it for the f type of work that they want to do, um, which is a lot of field work or mechanical work, you know, uh, master's is perfectly fine. 
I knew straight from when I graduated from my undergrad that I wanted to do volcanic research, that I wanted to be doing active research, and so I knew that the PhD was absolutely going to happen ultimately. Mm. So you didn't jump right into your PhD from undergrad, right? You, um, I was delayed a little bit. Yeah, so I actually applied to three programs and got rejected from all three, mm-hmm. which is a little bit disheartening. Yeah. But uh, it happens. It's, it's, you know, it happens to a lot of students. And so I kind of had a reflective period, and I was able to move from Colorado out to the Pacific Northwest, and I volunteered for the USGS, which was probably one of the best decisions I could have made during that time. And um, had an absolute blast working with everyone at um, the Cascades Volcanic Observatory. I got loads of opportunities. I got to fly in a helicopter into Mount St. Helens. I got to go out and explore around. Um, I got to go to Mount Hood a a bunch of times. Um, So it was a really good experience. Um, And I got just the the work that I was doing there, um, analyzing and using a lot of their equipment was, was valuable and probably what actually sold you know, BSU on my yeah. PhD experience. So looking back on that time when you didn't get accepted, do you think it ended up working out better that way with you getting that experience beforehand? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost always recommend, especially to undergrads, you know, try and get those internships or go and volunteer. If you if you can fund yourself or at least work and volunteer at the same time, like it's worth it. Um, and also you're networking and you're building these relationships with people outside of like academia who can really give you a good like foot in the door in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So right now you are in a multidisciplinary field studying something called lahars. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what is a lahar and what what are your fields that are multidisciplinary? Yeah, so a lahar is basically a volcanic mud flow And they're created when, so as we know, volcanoes explode, they erupt. A lot of times they emit a lot of ash out of them. This ash gets deposited. It's kind of loose. It doesn't compact right away. Um, And then when it mixes with water, um, it turns into a mud flow. And then it turns into um, different sort of variations of a mud flow. So they can be really, really thick, like concrete slurries, or they could just be like muddy stream flows Um, and it just depends there's a lot of different factors that go into it and so um, I am using well Jeff is a geophysicist I have no background in geophysics but um, we're actually using infrasound so really low frequencies anything below 20 Hertz to monitor these flows that come down these um, drainages I'm specifically studying something called rain triggered lahars so these are when it rains really heavily it mixes with the ash and starts a mud flow. There are different types of lahars. There's ones that start from snow melting or glaciers melting on um, glacier-clad volcanoes. There's also ones that happen from if a volcano has like a crater lake and somehow breaches a dam, um, that can start it. Um, Another example would be like for the Mount St. Helens eruption, you had this massive um, debris avalanche, so the flank of the volcano slid all the way down, and there was ice in there, these ice blocks which were melting, uh, it was mixing with the river, and so a lot of the loose ash that was within that deposit then turned into these lahars. Um, 
So there's, there's a lot of variation on lahars, but I sp specifically study rain-triggered lahars, which um, occur on a lot of volcanoes across the world. I'm specifically studying one in Guatemala called the Volcan de Fuego, which is one of the most active volcanoes in C Central America. This thing erupts probably every 10 or 15 minutes. It spews a lot of ash out into a plume. That all gets deposited. Um, every once in a while, it has a larger eruption. Its last large eruption was in 2018, where it had something called pyroclastic density currents, which are basically really hot ash and rocks, which travel down the flanks of these volcanoes at really high speeds. And it's due to when you have an eruption column, so you have a lot of ash and things coming out of the volcano, sometimes it becomes too heavy under its own weight because the air currents can't lift it, and so it collapses, and so it sends these things down the volcano. Um, That's similar to what has happened in Pompeii. It's that, yes, it's that famous, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so that's a famous one, is that, um, yeah, these, these people were sort of taken out by this pyroclastic density current. Um, so obviously those deposit large amounts of ash, and over time, as it rains more and more during the rainy season down there, it moves a lot of that ash downstream. And so that is what I'm studying. I'm studying basically the movement of those pyroclastic density current deposits and other ash deposits when it mixes with water. Um, and your other question is, what are the disciplines? So I use the geophysics, but I also use my geology background. Um, a lot of that has to do with geomorphology. So these river channels change a lot because these flows are, you know, um, eroding away certain parts of the channel. They're also depositing in other parts of the channel. And so a lot of what I'm looking at is how the geometry and the changes in these channels occur um, after a lahar, or after several lahars in this case. So, so stemming away from your research a little bit, you and I are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, when I first got to this geoscience department, I had no geo background, all physics background. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of the opposite. And I, I was pretty nervous to be here thinking I'm missing a majority of the information. Uh, how has it been for you, um, like trying to, I guess, catch up on some of the physics and the math? And do you have anything to say to anyone who's afraid to do this because of math or because of the physics of it? Yeah, that's <laughs> a really great question. Um, I am very scared every day. <laughs> um, no, I think, uh, you know, I surprise myself every day with the amount of knowledge that I think that I'm learning. And I, I owe that in large part to my advisor, who is a fantastic person. You know, he's so patient with me and he understands that my background is not geophysics. So um, he's very good at explaining things and talking me through things several times because I'm older and I forget things. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I feel like my learning curve has been huge, but it's been, um, I feel like I'm in a good spot with it. Um, coding is not something I thought I'd ever do. And then all of a sudden now that's all I do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been, that's been really interesting, but uh, I'm excited about it and I'm excited to learn that kind of stuff. I don't have a strong math background. I never got bad grades in math, but I always veered away from it. I'm much more of a writer, so. I use that side of my brain more. Um, and that was the one thing I think that I hesitated about when I went back to my undergrad program. 
And again, I surprised myself. I actually excelled in math when I went through my program, and I think it's just because I'm so fascinated in the topic yep. mm-hmm. that uh, the math just sort of comes naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to say, I'm not a, I'm still not a strong math person, but um, you know, I think if you have the enthusiasm and the willingness to learn, you know, um, I'm kind of like. Literally, when I went back to my undergrad program, I had to start with like adding fractions because mm-hmm. I just like was like, I think Scott said in our previous, you know, podcast, like if you don't use it, you lose it. So yep. I literally had to go back to basics. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, it was a lot of work, but it was also really rewarding. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that people don't really understand when they're just sitting in a math class doing math for math. It's hard to do that kind of math. And it's, there's not a lot of inspiration behind it, but when you're doing the math for something related to something you care about, it's no longer just math for math. It's it's like yeah. the puzzle pieces for your puzzle. You're putting them together and whatnot. So yeah, that's a really point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The applied math is really what, and the physics too. Yeah. Um, you know, physics is a tough subject, but it's super cool to be able to apply it to the things that you're learning. Yeah, very. Yeah. Real tangible things that you can see. It's like yeah. you're modeling a volcano using math. <laughs> Just can, it blows your mind. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. So something else about Ashley, she was recently awarded a National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship. It was. So congrats on that. Thank tell you. Us, tell us a little more about that. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, I hate to like talk myself up, but (laughs) (laughs) no, this, um, I actually just was awarded this grant. Um, it's a, well, a fellowship and, um, it's kind of prestigious. It's kind of a really big award to get because they're really tough to get. So I feel very honored and very, um, blessed to have gotten this. Um, for our non, um, non academia listeners, what is a grant? Um, so yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in our field, especially we apply for a lot of grants and scholarships and things like that. Um, basically it's funding given to you to, um, conduct your research. So, uh, I am already on a grant, um, to research these lahars on this volcano. Um, but what this fellowship does is it also gives me money just to kind of go through school, they want to make sure that, you know, it, it helps me complete my PhD program and um, gives me some leeway in how I can conduct research as well. More um, flexibility with resources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a great honor and it's really cool. I was actually just reviewing my uh, proposal for that grant last night and thinking like, oh my gosh, like, I want to do like 500 million things with yeah. this. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I awesome. might be here for 10 years. <laughs> Getting my change. PhD. <laughs> I'm sure Jeff will be pleased. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And then before your before you began your PhD here at BSU, you wrote a book chapter for a ranch in Colorado. I did. About geology, the yeah. local geology. I what, did. What was that like? That was a great experience. I did that. I was just asked by my undergrad advisor if I wanted to write this this chapter, um, there was a local author who was writing a historical book about this this ranch, and this ranch is really cool. It's, it's located in the San Juan Mountains in southern Colorado, which is a volcanic complex, so right up my alley. And um, 
it was really fun to go out there. I got to see the ranch. Um, they have an old uh, steel mine. Actually, sorry, it's a fluorite mine that is no longer in use, but the fluorite was used to help make steel mm -hmm. um, back in the day. But it was cool. We got to sort of take a tour of the mine. And uh, yeah, this area is super awesome because it's, it's known for one of the largest eruptions in history, known as the Lagarita Caldera. Yeah. Which is, um, I think, t almost twice as big as the last Yellowstone eruption. Wow. Um, wow. But it happened about 27 million years ago. Yeah. But it's, a, it's got a cool history, and it was, it was a lot of fun to go out there and look at all the different types of volcanic deposits. Was it um, a long chapter you wrote, or how, how much work was involved in it? Um, it took about two years to write it, wow. but that was mostly through editing processes. The chapter itself is not very long. I think it's like 20 pages maybe, so it's Just not a like... casual 20 pages. Casual, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, trying to write scientifically for yeah. the general person is, is always fun, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, it took a large portion of my time, but it was well worth it. And Well done. Yeah, thank you. As we're continuing to talk up Ashley, she also presented at a number of conferences, research over her career, um, AGU, American Geophysical Union, the SSA, Seismological Society of America, and then the GSA, which is the Geologic Society of America, mm -hmm. as well as the Graduate Student Research Showcase here at Boise State. Yeah. So she is well-versed in presentation of research. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I still get really nervous when I have to present at conferences, but yeah. <laughs> practice practice helps, mm -hmm. definitely. Totally. Well, there's our little bit of background on Ashley, so we'll get into some questions for you. Give, uh, no, we've already, we've gone through a lot already, <laughs> but more. Another question would be, what made you interested in this field of study, volcanology, and how did you get into this field of study? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I gave you a little bit of background on how I got into volcanology or why it passed. I guess, you know, I used to be one of those people that could, like, watch a video of lava flows for hours on end, and I was curious about it. I was like, how is it? bubbling like that, it's pillowing, it's expanding, and then it's cooling, and it's turning dark. So I was always curious about that. Um, so that was one of the reasons that kind of got me into volcanology. Um, I've never had a fluid dynamics class. I've always wanted to take one. Um, I think that's partly my interest in lava flows and things that are surficial, sort of flowing down these volcanoes. When I contacted Jeff and he said that he had this grant for these lahars, um, it just seemed to be a natural course of evolution for me because I could then study flow, like flow dynamics and all sorts of different things, mechanics with these flows, and it was surficial, it had to do with volcanoes, and so um, that's really what sold me on the project that I'm working on now. I see, I really want to hear more about these lahars, but I don't want to beat it with a dead stick and we'll get into it. <laughs> Um, so, kind of a little bit away from your research, what's the best or most fun thing uh, about the process or about what you do or what you have done? Um, well, I just work on volcanoes. I mean, I think, you know, I tell people that and 
it takes them a moment because they just think like, whoa, like I've never met a volcanologist yeah. before, which is like hilarious. You know, for us, it's like kind of nonchalant. We're like, oh yeah, I just work on volcanoes. But I think what they don't understand is that we actually sit behind our desks most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the field work is, you know, maybe 10% of the time. But um, yeah, I think the most fun thing is that I get to travel to these awesome places and view these really amazing mountains and climb them and um, just see how people interact with them in their natural environment. Sweet. All right, so now we'll dig a little more into your research. Um, so do you think you could describe your work using some type of uh, analogy or metaphor? Oh, gosh. Um, so lahars are quite diverse. Um, I think jokingly, I would say, you know, they pick up a lot of, of material as they're flowing down these drainages. So they're picking up boulders, they're picking up, um, you know, trees, stumps, they're picking up houses. Sometimes they can be that big and that strong. So um, I think my analogy would be, which is like kind of lame, <laughs> but the more baggage that we pick up on our journey, um, the more damage that we create, right? So the more stuff that a lahar has in it, the more damage to things like infrastructure, bridges and houses and other places it's going to have. So I would say that, yeah, um, try to limit your your you know baggage along <laughs> your flow it. path. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Great. Well, let's hear some more about your research. So, we've reached the segment of our podcast where you explain your research to three different groups of people. Um, so, to begin, how would you explain your research to a group of elementary school um, kids, fourth to fifth graders? Fifth grader. Okay. Yeah. So, um, having been an elementary teacher, I hope I can do this effectively. <laughs> um, True. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to a fourth and fifth grade class or elementary school, I guess I would say I study volcanic mud flows. Um, it's like really muddy fl uh, water that travels down river drainages um, or channels and picks up a lot of different stuff and we're using um, uh, special monitors to track these flows, so to, to see where they're going and how far that they're running out. And this will help us sort of develop better sensors and better um, monitoring stuff in the future so that we can help people stay out of the way of them or you know clear out their houses if they need to, if we feel like that's gonna be an issue. Um, but they're very cool. Sweet. Okay, so how would you now explain this to a um, more seasoned group, something like a, a class of undergraduate students? Undergrad. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, we're using these sensors to sort of detect and track flow paths of these volcanic mud flows coming down these drainages. Um, and we do that by measuring how they're changing, um, basically pressure changes in the atmosphere, and that's what our sensors pick up. And by doing that, we can characterize the signals that we're seeing to things in the flow, such as boulders or trees. We can also um, pinpoint where the sources, like the sound sources are coming from. Are they coming from the front of this flow? Or are they coming from the tail end of it? 
Um, and we can also determine, you know, how big these flows are and how they change and evolve as they travel downstream. Great. So uh, we already know you're well versed in giving research talks. Oh gosh. So um, <laughs> now you're at a conference and um, you're just going to give us a one minute thesis, oh basically, <laughs> to a professional group of people. Expert. Yeah, so, okay, so we use infrasound sensors to track and detect um, lahars as they travel downstream. Um, we co-locate those with seismic data, so the differences in ground shaking versus air pressure waves, which our, our sensors are picking up. Uh, we correlate those, make sure that they're aligned, and also we correlate our signals to make sure that they um, are picking up good noises. Uh, and we use that information to determine wave generation from the lahars, and we also use that information to hopefully determine different rheologies of lahars. So, um, you know, as these lahars are traveling, they're transitioning between hyperconcentrated flows and debris flows back to hyperconcentrated flows. So, we're hoping to use the systems to monitor how those transitions are happening, where they're happening in the drainages. And uh, we also use it to determine, you know, mass flux, these volume fluctuations, velocities, uh, how fast things are moving in the drainages. And hopefully this will help us in place better monitoring systems in the future because we'll be able to develop our sensors to more accurately determine those parameters. Sweet. Yeah, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. And Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, great yeah. job. <laughs> I feel like that was not articulate at all. No, it was, you. totally. It was. All right, I have a very important question. Okay. How would you solve a scientific problem if you were from the sun? Oh, the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Lived on the sun. Yes, in all of its plasma greatness. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess my answer would be from the sun. Um, that I would try to calculate how many solar flares I would have to send out in order to destroy that puny little planet called Earth. Oh yeah, I hate mm. that planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they'd get a really great light show. Oh, the planet's cool, it's just the renters. I'm not yeah, <laughs> I think the occupants yeah. are maybe a little bit crazy, but... The current tenants are yeah. a bit noisy. <laughs> they are. <laughs> I'm always, you know, trying to get their attention, but... They're awesome, too, in certain ways, but... <laughs> yeah, some of them. Huh. <laughs> I wonder if you would actually be able to get a solar flare to reach that far out. Probably not. Probably not. I guess we could Maybe once try the, it. <laughs> once the sun expands. There have been ones in the past that have reached very close to wow. Earth. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Just need a in massive flamethrower. Yeah, like, it could happen <laughs> at any moment, like... Be prepared in case, <laughs> in case the grid goes down. Yeah. All right. Well, let's ask you a couple of miscellaneous questions to wrap up this awesome episode. Uh -huh. um, epic episode. Epic Earth episode. Yeah. Where are the world's most active volcanoes? Um, so the most active volcanoes are generally around what we call the Ring of Fire. Um, or at plate boundaries, actually. Um, 
So there are a few volcanoes that don't happen around plate boundaries, but those are the most active ones because you have, um, you know, one plate going underneath another one. This creates a lot of um, commotion, earthquakes, if you will, other types of um, phenomenon, and it also melts those plates, and then you have this uprising of magma, which creates these stratovolcanoes. Um, but as we're all aware, um, Hawaii was very active for a long time, Kilauea. That is not on a plate boundary, that's actually a hot spot, which is basically the mantle plume. Theoretically, this is what we think it is, is the mantle plume is rising up, sort of bowing the top of the Earth's surface and then um, creating like a little fracture in the Earth's surface where this magma can escape through. Um, and so that's how all the Hawaiian islands were created. How do you explain their arrangement? The um, the Hawaiian Islands? Yeah, like why are they in a chain? Yeah, great question. So that actually does have to do with plate tectonics. Um, they are on the Pacific Plate, which is moving in sort of a northeasterly, uh, westerly direction. And so um, you can sort of see how the chains sort of bend up towards a northwesterly direction. Um, if you actually took the ocean away, you could see that there were probably hundreds more islands that were created over that hot spot um, over millions of years. And uh, yeah, so it's, that's, that's what's happening, is that the, the plate is moving over the hot spot. The hot spot's not moving, the plate mm -hmm. is moving, and as it moves across, it then creates a new island as, as it moves. It's like taking a, putting a blowtorch on and then just <laughs> moving, like, let's just say a plate <laughs> over it. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Definitely. It's a good analogy. <laughs> cool. Well, a simple question. What's your favorite volcano? Oh, my gosh. There's, um, I don't know that I could choose a favorite volcano. I mean, it, like, it is hard to not say that it's Fuego because Fuego is pretty phenomenal. But um, I think there are tons of volcanoes that, I mean, every time I see a picture of a volcano, I'm like, that is like my new favorite volcano. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's really hard to choose one. If I had to. How about, how about like a moment? Do you have a favorite historical volcano moment? Anything that you're particularly fond of? Oh, man. Maybe well, not fond of, but something that like resonates in your mind. Yeah. Well, I guess because I study Lahars, the thing that resonates most in my mind is um, there was a eruption on a volcano in 1985 um, down in Colombia. It was called Nevado del Ruiz. And um, this volcano had glaciers at the top. And when it erupted, it erupted at night, melted the glaciers rapidly, and created a massive flow of lahars. There were three or four lahars which occurred due to this eruption. And um, sadly, it it killed a lot of people. It killed about 23,000 people in this one village. Um, wow. That's not really an uplifting story, but yeah. the point is is that this is why I do what I do and why we study these, these flows and these volcanic hazards is because really at the end of the day, we just wanna make sure that we protect people and keep them away from something that's so unpredictable um, you know, the better we get with our monitoring systems, the better we are at evacuating people and making sure that they're safe, so. Right, so what, why is it that people live near volcanoes? Oh, wow, <laughs> that's a complex question. 
Um, they're beautiful. I mean, yeah. if I could live right next to a volcano, I would. Yeah, that's true. Uh, tantalizing beauty. Right. I think sometimes, you know, it has to just do with where you're born. Um, Mm -hmm. And the volcano is almost like a river is to us or, Mm -hmm. you know, some for some people, it's like growing to the grocery store. You know, it's just a natural way of life. And um, I think that, you know, some people prefer to um, live around these volcanoes because they they're really fertile. This, they yep. produce this ash, which becomes this really rich soil. And so it's great farming land. You know, they can make a business out of it mm-hmm. and make a, a lifestyle out of it. Definitely. It makes volcano hazard awareness even more important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of these systems erupt once over many generations. So the the story behind how it erupted or how much destruction it caused gets lost in, in time. People there don't always know or don't always think it's as dangerous as it is. Yeah, it's very true. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of places that promote a lot of hazard communication, um, and I think we're getting better at it. And uh, not always. There, there are instances where, you know, we, we are at fault for not being better prepared, but I would say that for the most part, you know, volcanologists and those people who work with emergency situations around volcanoes are definitely getting more, um, I don't know, they're, get, they're getting better at yeah. these situations. That's raising, good to hear. <laughs> raising the bar. Yeah. So I have one last question for you. Okay. What is lava or magma? How do you differentiate between them? And then what, what are they made of? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so the difference between lava and magma is Lava is just the surficial expression of magma. So magma is like that molten rock, which is underneath subsurface, so it's, it's in the earth. And then when it comes to the surface and flows on the top, then we call it lava. Um, so that's like the huge differentiation between them. Uh, and what are they made out of? Well, that just depends on what type of magma system you're looking at. So they can be, there's a whole host of different types of rocks and minerals which make up magma. And so that's why you get different eruptive styles in volcanoes. That's why you see different lava flows. Some flow really quickly, some don't flow as quickly. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really complex question to answer, but they, I will just say they are made up of various different things. Awesome. Well, Ashley, do you have anyone you'd like to shout out? Yeah, actually, um, I'd like to thank, you know, all the people in the department because they're awesome and uh, they're making my experience here at BSU really enjoyable. Um, Shout out to my advisor who is really kind and patient (laughs) with me. I'd also like to shout out to my undergrad advisor without whom I, I feel like, you know, he gave me real big encouragement and support while I was going through undergrad. So, um, a big shout out to him, my family, and um, all the people who so have supported me up to this point and in the future, and also to you guys, because you're awesome, and I'm so excited that we can do this together. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Ashley. Thanks for having me, guys. been a pleasure. Well, that was an epic conversation. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Tune in next time for another Epic Earth podcast.